Welcome to Murder Most Foul, a podcast devoted to exploring famous murder cases of our time. Some solved, some unsolved, but all fascinating and guaranteed to raise the hairs on the back of your neck. I'm your host, Jim Solonowski. Today's episode... The Poisoner. The ancient and oft-quoted Hippocratic Oath exhorts all doctors to do no harm. Technically, the exact words are, quote, I will abstain from all intentional wrongdoing and harm, unquote. It also states that, quote, neither will I administer poison to anybody, unquote. One Victorian gentleman in England who didn't get the memo, was Dr. William Palmer, who, in the mid-19th century, although tried and convicted for only one instance, is purported to have poisoned several individuals. Among his alleged victims, his wife, his mother-in-law, his brother, four of his children, and anyone he managed to take out a life insurance policy on with himself as the beneficiary. Journalist and author Stephen Bates wrote a book on the man Queen Victoria called A Blackleg in her diary. The book is titled The Poisoner, and he joins us now on Murder Most Foul. Welcome to the podcast, Stephen. Good afternoon, Jim. Um, so, Stephen, before we jump into the uh, case at bar, as it were, why don't you uh, give my listeners a, a little, um, a brief bio of yourself and also um, how you got interested in this um, particular murder case? Um, yeah, the I've always been interested in true crime and as a journalist for various national newspapers over here, uh, the Daily Mail, the Daily Telegraph, the Guardian for 20 odd years. Um, I covered lots of crime. I covered uh, lots of murder trials over the years. And uh, uh, so this has always been a fascination for me professionally. Um, the case of William Palmer, who was the Victorian doctor, uh, who was a, the central figure of the poisoner, um, came about uh, over a long gestation period, really, because... When I was a small boy, um, I followed a rite of passion, a passage that uh, um, uh, all small boys in England at least used to go through, which was to visit Madame Tussauds waxwork in London. And I'm not sure, because I was quite a nervous child, whether my parents took me into the Chamber of Horrors, where all the famous or infamous murderers uh, are situated. Um, but I certainly saw um, a photograph, I think, in the brochure of William Palmer, who looked a very ordinary Victorian gentleman, rather respectable, 
Um, the photograph of Palmer in the Two Swords brochure made him look um, much less villainous than uh, he was in real life. Uh, he looked terribly respectable. And that I discovered many years later when I came to write the book uh, was something that really um, phased the Victorians. They couldn't believe that someone who looked so ordinary, rather plump, rather rubicund, very respectable, a doctor, um, could be found to be poisoning people left, right and centre. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle referenced Dr. Palmer in The Adventures of the Speckled Band when he had Sherlock Holmes opine to Dr. Watson, Subtle enough and horrible enough, when a doctor goes wrong, he is the first of criminals. He has nerve and he has knowledge. But Doyle wasn't the only luminary of the time who was very interested and even troubled by the case, was he? And Charles Dickens, who was fascinated by the case, uncovered it at the Old Bailey, the Central Criminal Court in London, um, said uh, William Palmer was the most notorious figure who had ever appeared in the Old Bailey dock. Um, and he wrote to his friend uh, Forster, mm -hmm. his publisher, and said, I can't, essentially, I can't get it, the sight of William Palmer out of my mind. I see him in the street. I see him at the theatre. I see him at the uh, betting ring in, at the race course. Um, uh, he's just so ordinary. And yet he's this terrible villain. And that's what really fascinated uh, Dickens and a lot of contemporaries, because poison is a very insidious way of killing people. And in the Victorian period, it was very easy to get hold of. So, uh, Stephen, give us a little uh, biographical sketch, if you will, on the poisoner. Yeah, William Palmer was a man in his 30s when uh, he stood trial. He'd always been a bit of a bad lot. Uh, locally in uh, the little town in the middle in the English Midlands where he came from, which is called Rugeley. It's in Staffordshire. Uh, for people who don't know England terribly well, it's just north of Birmingham, the second biggest city in the country. Um, rich area, agriculture, um, and quite prosperous in the early 19th century not least because it was on the edge of what's called the Black Country, which was uh, an area of heavy industry in the uh, Industrial Revolution, uh, coal mines and uh, uh, iron plants, and uh, it was a, a go-ahead area. Uh, William Palmer um, came from a wealthy family. His father had made a lot of money um, essentially cutting down timber. He was a timber merchant. And of course, with the expansion of the cities and particularly the expansion of the factories in uh, the Midlands, um, his product was in great demand. So a lot of money around in the family. And uh, like a lot of families rising uh, through 
the prosperity of the Industrial Revolution, um, the children didn't go into uh, the grubby business of chopping down trees and uh, selling timber. Uh, they went into the professions. One son became a solicitor, that's a lawyer. Uh, 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 another son um, went into business. Um, and William, another son, went into the church and became a church minister. And William Palmer became a doctor. Now, he was actually uh, a surgeon rather than a doctor. Most doctors in the early 19th century were essentially surgeons rather than physicians. In other words, they could cut things off you and they could cut things out of you, um, but uh, they weren't so hot on diagnosis. And um, you can imagine it was um, a pretty gruesome uh, uh, activity because um, anaesthetics were only just beginning to be experimented with. And so you just had to grit your teeth or grit a leather belt if uh, they were going to cut things off you. And that was um, the sort of uh, medical attention you got if you lived in most parts of the country. Doctors themselves were expensive, surgeons less so. And William Palmer, he went to one of the big teaching hospitals in London. He went through and eventually, um, not without some effort, he uh, got his qualification. Um, allegedly, his mother um, paid for him uh, or promised to pay someone to cram him through the examinations and then reneged on the bill. Um, so they were a slightly fly com uh, family. Um, and William Palmer went back home to Rugeley and started practicing where he got a reputation as a ladies' man or a ladies' maids' man. He uh, decamped with one of them. Um, there are various rumours of illegitimate children around, uh, around his part of the Midlands. And in fact, as chronicled in your book, The Poisoner, one of his paramours who became pregnant, only known as Jane to history, was coached by Palmer via letters to see a, quote, dentist friend to get rid of that, quote, nasty tooth. It might be assumed that the dentist was, in fact, an abortionist. And um, what he increasingly got interested in was horse racing. Um, but this was not before he got married. He, he married um, a young lady who, in the best Dickensian traditions, he thought had more money than she actually had. Um, she was the illegitimate daughter of a retired army major who had shacked up, literally shacked up, with... Um, uh, a, a rather um, obscure Harridan who ran a pub in the nearby large town of Stafford. And this woman made the major's wife um, a misery and eventually he committed suicide. Um, and uh, William Palmer expected that his will would um, uh, bring a fair amount of money to his daughter. Um, unfortunately not. Uh, more legitimate uh, heirs um, seized the money 
and uh, so she didn't bring as much money to the estate as he would have wished. Nevertheless, the couple had children. They eventually had to put the Harridan up as well. Um, she was drinking quite heavily. She was, uh, by all accounts, an absolutely horrible woman who, when she, said, when she arrived at the house, told someone, I know that William Palmer, I won't last a fortnight. And indeed, she didn't last much longer than a fortnight. So she may or may not have been the first victim. Who knows? They buried her and no one bothered to dig her up and find out. Um, there were other victims and uh, they were people who got into drinking contests with him and suddenly were no more. They were race going buddies of his um, and uh, they suddenly took ill and died. Um, he got more and more interested in horse racing, which was a a sport which was very old in England, but um, was becoming more and more professional. And William Palmer got fascinated by this and got into gambling. And like most gamblers, he wasn't very successful. Um, but what he also did was buy racehorses, and they weren't terribly successful either. By the time he was eventually arrested, he had a stable of about... Um, uh, at least a dozen, I think more more like 20. I'd have to uh, check that. Um, but a lot of horses and horses are expensive to maintain and they were expensive to maintain in the Victorian period too. Um, and he paid over the odds apparently. And um, although some of them were quite good horses, uh, most of them weren't. And so he was getting deeper and deeper into debt. And he didn't have the money to either sustain his stable of horses um, or um, uh, pay off his debts, which were mounting. They, uh, by the mid 1850s, when he was at the height of his gambling, um, his, his debts were something over 20,000 pounds, which is a lot of money today. But if you multiply that by about 40 or 50 times, you're into the millions, and um, that's what he was owing. And in those days, you couldn't go to your friendly bank manager or um, uh, a re real estate uh, agent or any of the uh, people who might lend you money these days um, in a legitimate way. You went to money lenders of the sort um, Charles Dickens has in... Uh, fairly villainous quantities. And uh, he went to a couple of London loan sharks, essentially, and um, borrowed a lot of money from them. Uh, and these were pretty Dickensian characters as well. They were solicitors, they were lawyers um, with a profitable sideline uh, in lending money at very high interest rates and sending the boys round if you couldn't pay. Um, and by 1854, when he was about 34, 35, he was getting very threatening letters from uh, these moneylenders. If you don't pay, you should watch yourself, watch out for yourself. 
And uh, so one solution uh, appears to have been that um, he took out insurance policies. These were new things as well in the Victorian era, insuring someone's life. And funnily enough, they die fairly quickly and uh, you hope to recoup the money. Um, and he, he took out a very large insurance policy on his wife, Annie, who um, uh, died fairly quickly thereafter in some pain. Now, the couple had had five or six children by this stage, and all but the eldest had died. Um, and that at least saved him some money in the expense that they would have been if they'd grown up. Um, they died as babies. After he was charged, people said, well, he must have been killing them as well. There's no evidence of that, but it fit, began to fit a pattern. Um, he, had a, he had a brother, uh, an older brother, who um, was an alcoholic. He was, he was the businessman in the family, and he was not terribly successful, and he was slowly drinking himself to death. William Palmer accelerated that process by paying someone to soak his brother in gin. And uh, he bought a huge quantity of gin, um, gallons and gallons of the stuff, and said, just give it to him when he wants it. So he may or may not have poisoned the gin, but he certainly accelerated to death. And um, uh, the brother, uh, he tried to take out an insurance policy on the brother's life, and he got one of his uh, doctor friends in Rugeley to certify that he was in perfect health instead of drinking himself um, into an early grave. And by this time, having paid out on his wife's death, uh, the insurance companies were getting slightly concerned that um, uh, this man in the Midlands, who was uh, taking out huge insurance policies, um, on his closest relatives. There's nothing un illegal on that, except they did expect um, they did expect them to live a little while after uh, the policies were taken out. And uh, he scarcely paid the first premium on his brother's life when the brother pegged out. And the insurance companies smelled a rat at this point and um, uh, said, we're not paying out on on this death it's too fishy for that and uh, they sent up a celebrity detective to check it out uh, this was the famous inspector bucket um, of Charles Dickens Charles Dickens was a great mate of his and uh, the brother uh, the detective came back and said it was all terribly suspicious they didn't actually go to the police at this stage and say we think this man might be a murderer. The insurance companies hadn't paid out, and so he was getting even deeper into the mire of debt. And so enter stage right, John Parsons Cook. And he went to the races in late 1855 at Shrewsbury, which is a town uh, west of Birmingham, about 50 miles away from where he lived, with a racing buddy of his, another ne'er-do-well called John Parsons Cook, who was a young man, um, not terribly fit, um, but also a gambler and a racehorse owner. And at Shrewsbury races, uh, 
Cook's Horse won, and it won him quite a large sum of money, £2,000, I think. Uh, so perhaps uh, fifty or sixty thousand pounds, eighty thousand dollars in today's term. So a lot of money, but nowhere near enough for uh, William Palmer. Uh, and that was made worse because Palmer's horse lost, and a rather um, uh, uh, unfortunately, uh, John Parsons Cook went back to Rugeley with uh, William Palmer, his best mate possibly his only friend, and went, booked himself into the uh, coaching inn at the, in the centre of Rugeley, which was directly opposite where William Palmer lived, because he wasn't feeling terribly well. Over the next few days, uh, he felt worse. They had supper together and drank an awful lot, um, which wasn't a terribly clever thing to do if you're feeling a bit um, a bit dodgy. Um, and William Palmer kept on coming over the road and uh, feeding him broth and um, water and giving him brandy and... Every time he did so, William uh, John Parsons Cook felt a little bit worse. And then uh, on the Monday, Cook, uh, William Palmer took the train down to London. And uh, in those days, the uh, winnings were paid out by um, the uh, racing club in London, the Crockford's Racing Club. And they controlled the sport. And they knew that Palmer was dodgy. Um, so he was trying to get his mates to um, collect the winnings, Parsons Cook's winnings, because uh, John Parsons Cook wasn't in any state to go down there. And the money disappeared, funnily enough. And uh, while uh, Palmer was in London, uh, Cook got a bit better because he wasn't being fed anything by William Palmer, who was being so solicitous towards him. And when Palmer came back, he got worse again, and he got really ill, and he was having convulsions in the night, and Palmer was being called across by the anxious housemaids in the hotel, saying he's, he's, he's vomiting and he's screaming and he's having fits. And he indeed was. He was arching his back in his hotel bed and he looked as if he was suffocating. Uh, but after a very troubled night, he got better again. And another friend joined him who was also a doctor called uh, Thomas Jones, I think. And uh, Jones stayed in the hotel room with him. And this was a vital point in the uh, eventual denouement because he was another independent doctor who saw what was happening to Cook and uh, the following night uh, the two men went to bed and uh, in the middle of the night once again uh, Parson, uh, Parsons Cook started having fits and arching his back it was said uh, he, he is uh, his paralysis was so great that um, the only bits of him that were touching the bedclothes 
were the back of his head and his heels. He was arched so hugely and he was screaming in pain and Palmer was called across and it doesn't seem too bad to me. And within 20 minutes, John Parsons Cook was dead um, and uh, all clenched up. These are classic symptoms of strychnine, which is a new uh, poison in those days, hadn't long been discovered, except that it was terribly lethal. Um, but you could buy it over the counter in chemist shops um, because you wanted to deal with vermin or um, uh, get rid of uh, um, all the pests around your house or um, in very, very tiny doses. It could be used in certain medicines, but not in the sort of doses that um, John Parsons Cook appeared to have. Now, Palmer thought he was going to get away with this. Um, but what he hadn't, uh, he hadn't um, counted on was that Cook had a wealthy stepfather in London who had seen his, um, his uh, stepson a few weeks before and thought he was quite healthy. So when he suddenly got the news from um, uh, the other doctor who came hot foot down to London to tell him about it, he said he must have been poisoned. There's no other explanation for it. And there was a lot of um, newspaper comment about poisoning at the time. So uh, he whizzed up on the train to Rugeley and took an instant dislike to uh, William Palmer. Um, that uh, People said, you know, if you took an instant dislike, um, it saved time later. And uh, he found that uh, um, Palmer had already arranged for a very cheap burial for Cook, um, the cheapest possible coffin, um, the quickest possible burial. And uh, uh, the father-in-law, William Stevens, um, put a stop to that. He uh, arrived in time. And he said, but, you know, he's just won an awful lot of money on the horses. Um, where, where is it? And uh, Palmer said, I don't know. It seems to have gone missing. And, um, well, I mean, he only had five pounds on him, I think. And um, anyway, he owed me a lot of money. And uh, this, of course, enhanced Stephen's um, uh, suspicions of what was happening. And he insisted uh, that a post-mortem should be carried out on the body. Now, we have to remember, of course, that this was the mid-19th century, but even at that, this post-mortem seemed to turn into a comedy of errors and Keystone Cops mashup. It was probably the most chaotic and incompetent uh, post-mortem ever carried out, because uh, in those days it used to be held on the pub table downstairs um, amid the sawdust, with everyone crowded ground to look at the body. and. Uh, uh, the uh, surgeon who was employed to um, carry out the post-mortem turned up without any scalpel or other in instruments. He obviously hadn't given a great deal of thought to what he was expected to do. And so Palmer lent his instruments um, and 
they found a local medical student and the local chemist's assistant who'd actually sold Palmer the poison a few days before. So these were young men who'd never cut up a body and had not really very much idea what to do. And uh, they were instructed. Palmer was uh, hovering nearby. And as they cut open the stomach of, of the uh, cavity around the stomach uh, and were just lifting it out of the body to put in a jar, Palmer nudged them and one bumped into the other and woo -woo -woo the stomach fell on the floor amidst the sawdust. And because they weren't very expert, um, they made a cut in the, um, in the stomach lining. So most of the contents fell out, which was not very helpful. If Well, it was very helpful for Palmer, but not very helpful for um, anyone who was going to um, investigate the contents of the stomach to see whether there was any poison within it. Because Mr. Stevens, the father-in-law, had already employed the best-known pathologist in the country in those days, a man who knew all about poisons. Um, and uh, he was going to have the, the contents of the stomach sent down to London so that it could be um, investigated by a man, this man, Alfred Swain Taylor, who's one of the pioneers of um, pathology in this country and indeed in the States. So they scooped up the stomach from the floor put it in a glass jar and got on with the post-mortem. And a few minutes later, someone said, where's the glass jar gone? And they had to look round the saloon bar and found it somewhere near the door. And Palmer said, oh, did you want it? I was putting it there for safekeeping. Yeah, right. And with the um, kind of dubious chain of evidence, as it were, chain of possession, um, how was the uh, how did the jar of contents get to uh, London to be um, further inspected? The uh, hotel arranged for their postboy to get out the uh, hotel pony and trap to take it to the railway terminus at Stafford, about nine miles away, and Palmer wandered up to him as he was getting the uh, horse and trap ready and said, I'll give you £10 if you um, overturn it on the way. Make sure the jar doesn't get there. And this honest postboy said no. And uh, that was quite a decent thing for him to do because £10 was an awful lot of money to a postboy, probably six months' wages. Anyway... That didn't work. So the jar went off to Dr. Swain Taylor in London, um, one of the big London hospitals. And he couldn't find much poison, which is not surprising as the um, uh, contents had largely disappeared. But he decided that uh, it must be a case of strychnine poisoning based on the symptoms that uh, he'd been told about. And so there was an inquest. There was going to be an inquest, a full 
appearing in back in uh, Rugeley um, to investigate this sudden unexpected death. And even uh, Swain Taylor came up from London to give evidence. And the coroner, who was the local ma uh, judicial official in charge of an inquest in, in Britain, uh, suddenly found himself the recipient of uh, strange letters coming from William Palmer and bribes, very Dickensian sorts of bribes, hampers of um, game and uh, ham and uh, bottles of wine and goodness knows what else. Uh, and he also had a letter from Palmer. He had a £10 note in the letter. Uh, again, maybe it was the same £10. Um, but a letter from Palmer who said Swain Taylor hasn't found any evidence of poison. How did Palmer know this? It was because Palmer had a friend in the post office who had um, got instructions from his mate to steam open any letters that came from London to the coroner. And he'd had sight of um, Swain Taylor's letter. So there was an inquest and Swain Taylor gave us his considered opinion as the great world expert that Parsons Cook had been poisoned and the jury returned a verdict that he'd been poisoned by William Palmer. That was strictly beyond their competence. They shouldn't have uh, named a suspect. But that was the first time the police came into the case. And uh, Palmer was arrested and was going to be tried for the murder of his friend. Just the one murder at a time. And this is a pretty ripe story. And by now the national press in in England were uh, getting very interested in it and they sent bright young reporters up to Rugeley as they would these days and in those days and now uh, there were fairly strict rules of prejudicial reporting which were ignored because it was such an obviously juicy case and uh, they reported all the rumours so that um, it, the trial was pretty highly prejudiced Everyone knew this was a fiend in human form, this strange doctor who looked so normal and yet seemed to be killing off half his patients, uh, who all seemed to be dying fairly quickly. Uh, and there was a lot of prejudice, obviously, around, uh, around Rugeley and Stafford, the local towns, where the trial would normally have been held. Um, so much so that uh, the government of the day passed what became known as the Palmer Act, which moved the trial to the Old Bailey in London, outside the prejudicial area of uh, the reporting. And indeed, in, in big criminal cases, even today, two, 200 years on, um, the Palmer Act is still in force and uh, major trials get held at the Old Bailey. And um, it was a trial in London uh, attended by celebrities and people like Dickens and was very heavily reported. It was heavily reported not only 
in the Times and the Manchester Guardian and all the other London newspapers of the time who spent tens of thousands of words on the trial. But as far away as the New York Times, which recorded uh, the case as William Palmer, the Borgia of the betting ring, he was known as in America, in Ballarat in Australia, the local paper was reporting it. So he became a worldwide celebrity and the trial ended with a conviction which didn't take very long for the jury to arrive at. He had a very good trial. Most murder trials in the Victorian period took an hour or less. His trial took over a week. So they gave him a fair run for his money, but he was up against the best lawyers in the country. Um, the Attorney General was um, a very fierce examiner and cross-examiner. And Palmer had access to good lawyers, but they weren't a patch uh, on uh, the Attorney General and the prosecution case. And they had a very difficult case because uh, there was so much circumstantial evidence against him. And he was taken back on the train in chains to Stafford because uh, the punishment had to be duly carried out locally where he lived. And he was hanged in public. That's what happened to criminals in those days in Britain. Um, soon they would... Uh, decide that the crowds were too riotous and uh, ill-behaved and um, a certain degree of dis discretion was needed. So they, uh, about 10 years after Palmer's death, they, uh, they moved um, hangings inside into a, a decent de degree of discretion. But Palmer, so notorious, so wicked, so fiendish, was hanged one uh, rather wet June morning, as we tend to have in, in Britain, in front of a crowd of 30,000 people. And he wouldn't, he uh, didn't, um, he didn't go particularly quietly. He said, you are hanging an innocent man. And most people have uh, disagreed with that. Um, they thought he got his just desserts and they laid on um, excursion trains and people walked for miles and miles to watch this notorious figure hang and um, until more gruesome murderers came along over the rest of the Victorian period he was the archetypal poisoner and he's been largely forgotten these days but Madame Tussauds had his effigy on display in the Chamber of Horrors for more than a hundred years, which is where I got to hear about it. Now, even Queen Victoria was interested in the Palmer case, and she kept a daily diary and mentioned it in one of her entries, and you have it in the book, and I would like to quote it here. We heard that after a trial of 12 days, that horrible Palmer, a doctor and a blackleg, well known on the turf, has been found guilty of poisoning his unhappy friend Cook with strychnine. Everyone was convinced he had done that and also poisoned his wife and brother, all for money. But there were great fears that it would not be proved. However, after one of the longest and most interesting, though horrid, trials on record, 
The scoundrel has been convicted. The defense was bad, and the witnesses quite perjured themselves. I dined alone and dressed afterwards for a ball at the Turkish embassy. There's a famous quote in the book somewhere saying, uh, your household is well-regulated, your wife is loving, and uh, your meals are regular, everyone looks up to you, but how do you not know that she has poisoned the curry? And this was a real and terrifying fear for the Victorians. And it applied just as much in the States as it did in, in England. And people were worried because you couldn't, not only did they look terribly innocent and open-faced like William Palmer, um, but uh, you couldn't actually taste poison in the curry, in, um, in your gin, in, in, even uh, in other sorts of food. It was lethal and you didn't have to be given a lot of it. And you were, the first you would know was when you were writhing in agony. Mothers in the Midlands used to say to their children, if you don't behave, William Palmer will get you. And then there was the question about Rugeley, which became notorious as the home of Palmer. He was the Rugeley poisoner. And the story circulated that the uh, uh, city fathers of Rugeley petitioned the government of the day to change the name of their infamous town. Uh, now, the prime minister at the time was Lord Palmerston, and he was alleged to have said, yes, you can change the name. You can name it after me. And it can become Palmerston or Palmer's Town. Now, people have accepted this as a story for 130 years. Actually, it appeared in one of the papers uh, the day after Palmer's conviction. So they did, the, the city fathers didn't have a chance to do this. They would have looked rather ludicrous if they'd sought to uh, change the name of their ancient town. Inevitably, the Palmer saga uh, gave rise to many stories and legends, including one that claimed that the phrase, what's your poison, has its origin during this time because it was suggested that one of Palmer's methods of delivery of his strychnine was in the drink he kindly bought for you. There are stories like... Um... Uh, Palmer being offered a glass of champagne on his last morning and saying, no, the bubbles always um, upset me if I drink champagne. Well, he didn't need to worry too much about that on his last morning. And it had been raining overnight and it was quite a long walk from the condemned cell out of the jail to the scaffold. And um, he minced past the puddles on the way saying I wouldn't want to catch a cold and when he got to the scaffold and tested 
the trap door and said, are you sure this damn thing's safe? All these are made-up stories, alas. Um, but they contributed to his reputation as a bit of a lad. The only thing that, that he said on his last morning was, you are hanging an innocent man. I didn't do it. Uh, your blood is on my head, etc., etc. So um, I'm afraid all those great stories are not true. What is true is that um, the hangman was a man known as Topper Smith, not because he topped people, but because he liked to buy a new top hat for every execution. It was adding a bit of tone to the proceedings. And furthermore, Topper undercut the national hangman, who was a man called Marwood, who charged £10 to top someone. And um, Topper Smith said he'd do it for a fiver. And indeed he did. Um, the one thing that perhaps remains to be said was that... Um, you know, the Victorians were great phrenologists. They liked trying to decipher whether you could tell a murderer from the bumps on his skull. And so the one thing that happened to Palmer's body afterwards was that they made plaster casts of it to see whether they could tell whether the bumps and um, lumps on his head indicated a murderer so that you could tell and no, they couldn't, but they thought they could, but no, they couldn't. He was a perfectly ordinary man. And that's what made the Rugely Poisoner so terrifying. Now, although um, Topper did not come away with any of Palmer's clothing to sell, being the enterprising young man that he was, he didn't come away from the hanging empty-handed, did he? He sold off the rope that hanged Palmer and he'd had it made extra long, about 25 yards of it, which was much larger than uh, William he needed to hang Palmer. And he thought he was a black country um, nail maker or something. And he chopped up this 25 yards of rope into little pieces and he went round the inns and the pubs of the black country wanting to sell in the uh, accent of the black country which is particularly unpleasant it's a it's an ugly accent i have to tell your your viewers and listeners i used to work in birmingham so oh no it's not a very nice accent and he hawk these little pieces of rope around the pubs. The rope that hanged Palmer for years and years and years afterwards. And I guess they probably still appear from time to time. Well, Stephen, the time has flown by. This has been a fascinating visit to Victorian England on the coattails of a riveting case of murder and retribution. And if that weren't enough, you have what I might call a companion book entitled The Poisonous Solicitor. 
the story of a British lawyer, uh, as we call them, who used poison to remove at least one business rival. The book, published in England, will be released in the States in late spring, and you have promised to come back to Murder Most Foul at that time. To my listeners, Stephen Bates's books can be found on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and at your local library. Once more, Stephen, thank you so much for joining me today on Murder Most Foul. Thank you very much, Jim. Look forward to seeing you again. And my gratitude to you, the listener, for joining me today. Please spread the word. Comments about the show can be left via the email link on the show's website, www.murdermostfoul, all one word, no caps, no spaces, dot com. So, until next time, stay safe. And for God's sakes, don't murder anyone. Uh-huh.